Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Paul. Hello. How are you doing? Very good, and you? I'm well. You're based in London, right? Yeah, correct. A very long way from where you are. Yes, I'm talking to Paul Papadimitro, founder of Intelligence here. And also founder, producer, host of two very interesting podcasts, which I've listened to. One of them is Layovers and the other one is Digital Loop. So Paul, we know each other since the days of startups, I think even in Japan, right? That was where we first met. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Correct. You got a very interesting background. So I want to start off is you started off with international relations. How do you progress to become an innovation scout in the end? (laughs) It's a good question. If you look at my LinkedIn resume, it doesn't make much sense, right? No, actually, I think it was because I was always curious about how things work. You know, I always wanted to understand how things work. And when I was a kid, the first bit is my father, who didn't even have a typewriter, one day just offered me a computer and say, this is a future, figure it out. So that's hence my love for technology. And the other bit that I was always fascinated about history and economics. I mean, not when I was 10, obviously, that came a bit later, which is why I chose to do international relations, because I wanted to understand basically how the world worked. And then finished my studies in 1998. So for those who are old enough to remember, that was the time where the first time where all the the startup thing was big. I was doing for a living, I was making website for a living while I was actually studying. So that was paying part of my studies. And then I joined a startup immediately after university. So here you go, I was directly going from international relations to startups. And since then, I've always tried to mix both. So this is how I became innovation. You know, the term innovation is almost most of a marketing term because that explains to corporation I work with what I do, which we'll come to later, obviously. But at some, you know, at some point, if you study international relations, you realize that at some point the term innovation was called progress. It's always a bit uh, story repeating itself. So it's just me being curious, wanted to understand what happens, you know, how things work from computers to the world. So what brings you to Asia? I mean, you spend a significant amount of time in Tokyo, but I think you also spend some time in Korea as well, right? The Philippines, actually. I lived in Japan back in 2008, exactly. That's probably around that time where we met. I also lived in the Philippines after that. And I was still coming a lot to Japan because Japan is also the time where I created the company I have now, nowadays. I founded it now so a long time ago. And I mean, it, it didn't have that name back then. I changed the branding over time, obviously. Unlike a lot of people, I will admit something, and I know you have a big Asian audience. I was not not interested in Asia, but for me, it was another part of the world, like all the other parts of the world. I was equally interested in all the other parts of the world. I had studied China uh, during my studies, uh, but not Japan, nor any other countries. So for me, going coming to Japan was not like, oh, I really want, I love manga, or I really love technology. It was more something that I discovered when I was there. I actually discovered the country and then Asia, although Asia, like you know, is this big thing. It's so big that, you know, it's a bit almost an exaggeration to all put it together. But I learned very quickly about Asia and I also fell in love, first of all, with Japan and Tokyo, and then with all the other countries I was lucky to visit, including, of course, Singapore. My first time in Singapore was actually also in 2008. So it's not, it's something quite recent for me. It was very driven first to the US 
and obviously Europe and Asia came late. But since then, I've always been active there. You, you sound that from your international relations background that you're just like the global citizen. Is that the reason <laughs> why? No, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that term global citizen because you somehow, somehow makes me better than other people, which is not true. But it's true. I have a multicultural background. It's still very European. My dad is Greek, as my last name tells you. My mother was from Finland, and I was born and raised in Switzerland, uh, in Geneva. So, And I always had that thing that, you know, I was always a bit a foreigner anywhere I was going. Even in Geneva, also, it's a very, although it's a very uh, cosmopolitan city, maybe not as much as London or New York, uh, let's say, I was always, you know, the odd one out. Uh, I never suffered truly from it, so I'm not complaining, which meant that for me, you know, traveling and seeing other places was always natural for me. And I used to follow an online publication that you write called Mobile in Japan for a while. So, yes, uh, that was, yeah. <laughs> so how did you started writing about the Japanese mobile industry? I mean, it's one of the sites that I actually look for data. You yeah, well. Know, you put a lot of not, snippets and a lot of interesting data on that site. Yeah, no, not really anymore. I mean, it, it started, so first of all, the mobile, I got my first mobile phone in uh, 97, probably. And, you know, so I had this thing in the computer at home and suddenly I had a mobile phone after working, uh, believe it or not, at the World Trade Organization to give me one. So coming back to trade, you see, I'm always about international affairs and trade. I was fascinated. And actually, the, the startup I mentioned that I was one of the first employee of in 98 was actually mobile. We were actually delivering mobile content, which nowadays seems completely, of course, something that everybody does. Back then, it was almost stupid because there was no customers. When I joined, when I arrived in Japan, to make the story short, I was amazed because I was living in the future. You know, there were apps were already existing. Maybe you will remember and some other will remember there were no apps back then. They appeared a bit later with, with the iPhone. So there was nothing from my side. It suddenly arrived in Japan and I could even swipe my phone over, you know, to enter the, the metro. So that was really amazing. And the coincidence was that Apple was about to release the iPhone 3GS. They didn't uh, release the 3G in Japan for network reasons. And it was, that was the start of basically why I wrote that blog because I was just, it was so hard for me to get the iPhone. Everything was in Japanese and my Japanese was very sucky. It became a little bit better, but I'm still not great. And I just started by just writing about, here's how you get an iPhone in Japan. So that was the all start. And then, uh, more, the more I wrote about it, the more I fell in love with oh, everything that has to do with uh, mobile in Japan, and hence, the, of course, the, the name of the blog, uh, the blog. Then the thing is, of course, since I've left Japan, I continued on and off. Uh, there was a lot of data, but you know, at some point uh, now, if you look at it, it still ranks really high on Google, one of the first sites. It's not, first of all, I have less time, but also I feel like I don't live there anymore. So I don't have access to that first hand information. You have much better people to come to mind in terms of persons, someone like Sir Contoto. I know you had him as a guest as well on, on Analyze Asia. He's much better than me. He has so much information, although now he's focused on gaming. He's so good at, at this. So I would, I was not really being useful. And, the other sources, obviously, you know them well, uh, is Tech in Asia. Tech in Asia started, of course, writing with Ben Olson, et cetera. And they really have now became the kind of premier destination for anything that comes to technology, thus mobile as well in Asia. So I didn't see the need to continue, although I have a few people that keep telling me you should, but it's, it's, it's harder when you're not there. Now you are in London. Before that, how did you eventually become 
this innovation scale? I mean, I think I, probably the easiest way to ask you is how do you gel this whole concept of innovation and business together? Well, at first, again, it was a bit accidental. I was in Japan and I was not working and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and what I was actually what kind of value it could have. So I always, of course, was working related to technology since I told you I would I basically started my career in a startup. It was a big alignment of the planets. You know, I'm in Japan. Everybody, you know, was interested in what what is happening in mobile in Japan at the same time. The, this era was where all the things like Twitter, Facebook, and, and others were starting to take off. And I became, you know, there are people actually, foreign companies that were looking for people to understand the Japanese market. Basically, to make a story short, I aligned myself and I became that bridge. So this is how I started to have my first client. So at the very beginning, it was doing mostly research reports for these companies, and then I made, uh, made them some help. So basically, I built up a consultancy from nothing and it became actually quite good you know the luck to pick an anecdote the luck i was having is having this very complicated last name so of course when you google me i'm always almost at the first uh, every time <laughs> it's good for seo and the other thing is in japan i would stand out as well because i'm very tall i'm six five or 196 centimeters i would always stand out and i was participating uh, back then i was uh co-organizing a series of events, a monthly event called Tokyo 2.0. The people old enough will remember it was a monthly event. It was really cool. It was basically one of the only bilingual events, both in Japanese and in English, uh, that would happen in Tokyo. And of course, this also kind of put me forward in the scene and then companies reached out to me. So it became, it was a bit organic. Obviously then, you know, I didn't leave it as organic. I also started shaping my business and it become what it, what it is today, which is helping companies figure out innovation. And now you reside in London, but are you still active in Asia? Yeah, I'm still active in Asia, yes. So recently, for instance, I've helped a company called Canonical. So not many uh, people know that name, but most people know what they do is called Ubuntu, a Linux distribution. And uh, they just recently come out uh, Ubuntu OS for mobile phones, uh, for smartphones. And this is actually the project I've been on working for them with uh, on over two years now, uh, the whole launch of that product. And that... Part of that was actually happening in China. So that was one of the things where I was, one of the countries in Asia when I was uh, active. Another example is I also work with one of the agencies in South Korea, uh, one of the agencies about entrepreneurship. So that's another link I have with Asia. And I've also invested in, in a few in, in a few startups, though my recent investments have not been in Asia, I'll be very honest, because I, I since I usually now go off and on for a business and then I leave very quickly. I don't really have the time, sadly, to meet with local entrepreneurs, which I used to do a lot more before. The consulting firm is called Intelligence here, right? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's one of these names. I just came up with it one day. Uh, it's Intelligencer without the E, so everybody makes a mistake. It's not, you know, it's not a brand anyway. It was just that I needed a name to also, you know, make it a trademark or anything. It is just, uh, but it's not. People do not usually know the company. They know me, not that I'm famous or anything. The, the way I work is that I, I build teams for corporations. Every time I have a client, I can have multiple clients at the same time. I will build a team. I will find the right capacity for the project that I'm assigned to. So it can be just me or it can be sometimes five people. It can be a lot of people. It depends on the, and I, uh, for the duration of the project. And projects can be three months. Projects can be two years. Can, projects can be even longer. So this is how it is. This is why most people, and I've never made, that's my mistake maybe, I've never made enough effort to actually push that intelligencer name out there. You can always eventually build a website and then you can put up all these case studies that you have done across the world. Actually, <laughs> actually that's that's something I should do. You know, this 
Yeah, if I look at that to-do list I have it in front of me while I'm talking to you, the to-do list is like is forever. This is one thing that I haven't still figured. You're absolutely right. This is something I should do more. But to be at the same time, I have more work than I can do. So it's always being case that, you know, I, I will do it one day, but it's not as, as I need it. Not that it's a good, I would not recommend anyone to not do it like I do, but uh, for the moment, it hasn't deserved me. So that is where you get your bread and butter, but you are also an angel investor. You have invested and mentored companies as an angel investor. Instead of asking you the success stories, or you, you can tell me some of the stories of the companies you have invested. What are the kind of red flags that you don't invest in a founder? Ah, the red flags. I usually try to look for the positives first. I mean, you know, especially at my stage, I'm a early stage investor. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a fund. I'm not even 500 startups. So there's a, a limit. And it's not a full-time job either. Uh, as we say sometimes, angel investing uh, is uh, it's money you can afford to lose. Uh, I never feel that I lose it because I feel it can help some so, someone or a team. So usually I look at it. And what I meant is that at very early stage, Red flags uh, can be misread. So I first look at a positive, and I think there's three things I look in every person, team, or especially person I meet as uh, resilience or grit, character, so someone that can show adaptability and curiosity, uh, because I'm also very curious. And of course, there's the model. But you know, the business model, when we talk to someone or to a team that is very early, is they're still figuring it out. So that's totally acceptable. The, the, probably the only very big red flag that I would have, uh, besides you know the usual, the person is I was about to say some uh, a bad word, but it uh, is a very <laughs> is not an agreeable person. It's uh, the lack of commitment. I know that this is a tough one because sometimes people they, they come to me and they say, oh you know I, I already have a job and I do that on the side, or I'm not going to leave my job because I don't. I, I get it, right? It's it's hard to leave everything behind and take the risk to become an entrepreneur. At the same time, if you're not fully committed to a project, it's very hard for an investor to believe in you. you know? So that's probably maybe the, 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 the red flag I'm getting. But then again, if the person is just chatting to me, is not, not really looking at that moment for investment, but just chatting. So one of the stories was one of my investment, I think it was in 2011, I met this guy. I was waiting for a friend, for Alex Barrera, a good friend of mine in Austin during South by Southwest at the lobby of a hotel, and he was slightly late, as all Spaniards are. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> Greek. I'm Greek, so I can be late as well, though I'm Swiss at the same time. <laughs> there was this young person next to me, and he had an iPad 2, and the iPad 2 was just released, and I thought, can I, can I play with it? And we started chatting, and the guy had a great idea about a project. It was very early stage, so the guy was not pitching. So I would not have told him, oh, there's a red flag because of lack of commitment at that moment in time. I ended up investing in him. Sadly, the company folded. It happens. There's no, for me, it's really the positive. You know, the, the grit, resilience, that's the same thing for me, character and curiosity. If you have these three, usually that's something's a good sign. It's not enough, but it's a good sign. The rest is about, you know, believing in a project and also maybe like you, because I know you've also done that, is also usually investing in something that I can actually understand. Not fully understand, but at least understand. And do you have any interesting companies that you have actually invested as an angel investor and still going on? Oh, yeah, but now I'm just, the list is a bit long, but let's mention the two latest investment. One is called Seed Labs, a company in a base in San Francisco, but they're, so I, yeah, I forgot to mention most of my investment I made in emerging countries because that's also where I'm traveling the most to. So I know these countries best. So I've traveled to and invested in Brazil, for instance, Southeast Asia, obviously, Eastern Europe. So Seed Labs was originally from Eastern Europe. They're based in, in uh, San Francisco and they are in the Internet of Things. Uh, they are producing 
basically an ecosystem around the Internet of Things. There are chips that uh, that you can be embedded in, you know, light bulbs, etc. And another company also from Eastern Europe called Native Tap, and it helps. This is something that's closer to what I used to do, the the mobile industry. So it helps actually. You know how uh, Android, uh, the Android ecosystem is. There's so there are so many devices, and it's hard to develop for so many devices. And they kind of solve that problem by helping you having a live screen of any type of device you want directly. So you don't need to buy. I don't know all the Samsungs, et cetera, et cetera, but you can just directly access live on the screen and see what your code is doing. So that's another play. There are still beginnings. It's a bit early to say they're a success. You know, I, I haven't had, and I'm, and I'm not sad about it, I haven't had like this huge exit that everybody talks about. That was never the goal, although, of course, like everyone, I'd be happy to have one in my life. But I mean, it was really every time it was because I fell in love with the, the team behind a project. And of course, I understood the project. So I never had expected, it was not an expectation of becoming filthy rich. And then in Southeast Asia, you mentioned? The companies in Southeast Asia, the ones that currently, actually the last two have folded. So uh, okay. uh, yes, uh, it happened, you know, it happened. But they, these were investment that I'd made three years ago or something. Uh, what I've now done in Asia, uh, there's one that could be happening next week. So I cannot talk about it yet mm. uh, because I haven't told the founder that would talk about it publicly here on this podcast. Okay. What I've done though is I've invested in a fund. It's a small fund. It's not like a huge fund because again, since I don't live in Asia anymore and I don't travel probably as much as I used to, I have a lack of understanding of certain markets. You ask me about Indonesia, for instance, and I don't get it fully. So I prefer to rely on people that live there, someone like you, for instance, or you know, people in, you have a po direct pulse of what's going on. I don't have the network of someone like Dave McClure with 500 Startups. So I rely on other people and I'm still interested, but I rely on their on their abilities. The other model I'm looking into that I would actually love to do is, you know, to find an Angelist syndicate, you know, some syndicates that actually invest in specific other vertical countries in, in Southeast Asia. In Asia in general, I'm not limiting to Southeast Asia. That would be something that would be very interesting for me. But I haven't made, it's not something I'm actively doing. Again, for me, angel investing has mostly be due to uh, random encounters. I'm not looking actively for deal flow, but it, if it happens, and it happens often, to be honest, but if it happens, I do it. And then you have two podcasts, yeah. Layovers <laughs> and Digital Loop. I'll start with Digital Loop first. Okay, okay. So what did they, What is it about? So again, another accident of history. I met a friend, so he used to be a trapeze artist. He's from Mexico, lives in Poland. It's called Ivan Hernandez. We're, we met at a conference a few years ago and, you know, we were then chatting online and, I, and we were having similar interests. I don't know if you if you have the time to blog, you, Bernard. I mean, you probably blog for the podcast, but that one of my biggest uh, frustration was that I was never... I never had time to blog. I mean, after I basically kind of stopped blogging for mobile in Japan, I never had time because I had so many things to do for my company. And I said, you know what? The podcast is good because you can, like we do now, we can just chat and, you know, very quickly you can create content, talk about interesting stories, interesting insights without having to spend the time to edit, et cetera, et cetera. Although there's still a lot of work with podcasts. We'll come back to that later. And the thing is, we just started to say, okay, let's have one topic, not a week because we don't do a weekly a weekly one, but let's one one topic we cover for 20, 25 minutes, no more. It used to be only a video, then I put everything on, on SoundCloud to also have the audio version. It's it's a nice podcast. A lot of people listen to it. I got some clients through it as well, so uh, it's fun. I mean, we just released a new episode very recently. Now, usually, it's every two to three weeks we have an episode. You can check it out. It's on thedigitalloop.co. It really covers... 
a lot that has to do with uh, social, online, digital, obviously, and innovation. So it's a mix of we meet entrepreneurs, we talk about it, or we talk about the technologies, or we talk about how people can leverage everything that happens online. Wow. Well, but it's the second podcast that I basically got you on the show because I am listening to it and I really liked it. It's actually about aviation and it's called layovers. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And that is why I wanted to get you here to talk about aviation industry in Asia, right? So correct. So there's a team behind it. So maybe the, the story first is maybe tell me how did you ended up starting this podcast about the aviation industry? I will just backtrack a little bit just to tell you. So the reason, of course, first of all, I travel. I'll travel a lot. And since I cover many countries, I travel by plane mostly. I've traveled for as soon, you know, as long as I can remember. I was lucky to have parents who could afford to travel when I was a kid. So I remember taking the plane as a kid as well to go to the US, for instance. So I always love, like, I still, when I go to a plane, I'm still like a kid. I look at a plane like a kid, right? So this is something I still enjoy. Travel itself, so not air travel, any kind of travel. You remember I just said before that in entrepreneurs, there is something about the, the qualities are grit, character, and curiosity. And it's basically the same thing for travel. When somebody travels, it gets into a foreign environment. And you don't have to be a, a, a migrant. You can just be a tourist. You go in a new, a new environment. It's very difficult to figure out sometimes. You don't have a map in front of you to tell you what to do, how to understand the locals, etc. That's the same thing. You have to have grit character and curiosity. You have to be curious about the culture you're going to, you have to adapt to the culture you're going to, and you have to be resilient. If you fail, you start again, you try to to, uh, to ask for forgiveness, etc. So that's the very similar qualities to be in a foreign environment or to build a startup, which is also a foreign environment because you're going somewhere without a map. So that's, I love travel. I'm not saying that people are travel because there's this, there's this thing and you can see it sometimes when entrepreneurs, especially successful one that, they, you know, they post a lot of pictures of their travels and Instagram, et cetera. You're not a better person because you travel. So don't mis- misunderstand. But I think that travel opens, you know, forces you to think differently you know, about foreign environments again and opens your mind you know, to new ideas, new forms of innovation as well. So our travel was because uh, so a friend of mine called Alex Unter, which he, who was my co-host on the show that I produce. We met actually in Singapore, believe it or not, in 2010 via Dave McClure. So see, it's a small world. And so he's a branding expert. He knows a lot of branding. He was part of the team that launched Virgin America in the US. And his father is an aviation veteran, I would say. He's been working for Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong. He's been working for Oman Air. He's working for... So he's been brought in this uh, industry while I was not. And he's, he's really fascinated about planes as well. He has probably more of a fascination about the aircraft themselves. I have more of a fascination about the business because as I told you at the very beginning of this show, what I, I like to understand how things work. Usually I like to understand how the industry works. And we were working together on some other stuff. And, but we kept, you know, messaging each other. Have you seen this bit of news? Have you seen that bit of news? We talked like every day about aviation. And one day, uh, it was uh, Christmas last year, I just told them, you know what, we should, should just do a podcast. Since I had done that other podcast, The Digital Loop, I knew that it was not, I knew what it required to create one. And we just started. Our first episode is just two guys chatting, right? And it's still two guys chatting, actually, about aviation. I, there's a lot of work involved uh, uh, because you have to curate the topics, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, uh, it became really something 
almost bigger than us because at the beginning, we never expected that we had so many people listening, not that we have millions, let's not kid ourselves, but we had to improve the quality of the sound very quickly, improve the quality of the curation very quickly because very quickly we had a lot of passionate people. You know, there's a lot of people that love flying that came to us and say, you should do that and you should say that, et cetera, et cetera. So it became something uh, really big. Now, we try to do it weekly. But to be honest, lately, it has mostly been every two weeks because first, there's a lot of work and also because simply he travels as well a lot and I travel as well a lot. And sometimes it's hard to do a, a podcast on the road. But, so you should, if you want to take uh, to listen to it, it's layovers.to, so .to at the end. And in each episode, we cover the, the fun bits sometimes. So more often than not, obviously, the industry news, the technology news. So, you know, the startups are active, the apps that are interesting that we see. We started inviting as well guests, including some entrepreneurs, because we really want to understand how, you know, entrepreneurs could help this industry. So industry is very hard to disrupt for many, many, many reasons. And But every week we also, because it's a fun bit, every week we also finish the show by covering an airport. Uh, and that's usually the name of the show. We did Singapore, actually, uh, Shanghai. <laughs> we yeah, also did the Hong the best Kong. airport in the world, right? <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Actually, it is. We mentioned that in the last episode, episode uh, 22. We call them flights. It was flight 22. So we also, yeah, we, uh, Shanghai is by far the best airport in the world. Yeah. And it will remain so for a long time, I think. The interesting part of it is that you don't just talk about travel as a highly regulated industry. I mean, you know, when you walk into the airport, you prop virtually spent at least four hours in there. Correct between both locations. And then you need to disrupt the, the way how it is done. I mean, different kinds of airlines, you know, there's the budget airlines, there's the premium airlines. And Correct. actually, aviation industry in Asia is actually very advanced. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's actually more, uh, uh, for many reasons. I mean, first, just to answer you, you, the, the, you, you, you think about the four hours, I think it's very interesting because it's one of the only... Uh, if you think about it, it's one of the only industry that knows for sure where you'll be for a, a certain amount of time. It's not like a traditional sh store, for instance. You, they know that you, Bernard, will be at Shanghai for two, three hours. You're locked in the airport. You have nothing, nowhere else to go. There's a lot of leverage that, that, that I, don't, I believe the industry is not taking care of, which is why you see a lot of startups trying to help that customer, that's passenger experience, what to do in an airport, et cetera. No, no one has truly figured it out, but that's one thing. And that's also why uh, Shanghai is so well done, because Shanghai has created a whole lot of activities that you can do whilst you are at the airport, whether other airports are just a big, you know, square hangar and you have nothing to do and you just, but so the second part of your question about Asia, nowadays everybody talks about, you know, Emirates, Etihad and Qatar. This is the thing that everybody talks about. We'll talk about it in a minute. But if you think about it, the blueprint for these airlines were actually made in Asia. The most innovative airlines were Cathay and Singapore Airlines for two, for a simple reason is that both Hong Kong and Singapore created that idea of, okay, we're a small city in the middle of large countries. We have to figure out different ways. So that comes back to my international relation background. We have to, they had to find another way to do trade. So they became kind of free port and they applied that business model for airlines as well. So their airlines, if you look at what Emirates is doing is what exactly to a certain extent, and by the way, Emirates tells tells it so, this is exactly what Singapore and Hong Kong have been doing. It's this model where it's not only about bringing people to Hong Kong or to Singapore, it 
was about transitioning people from one part to another. And that proved very successful. Singapore Airlines and Cathay Pacific are still two of the best airlines in the world. So that was one part where Asia has been of, of, uh, very, very innovative. The other bit, there are two other bits actually. One is uh, the, the low cost. Although nowadays a lot of people talk about the low cost airlines in Europe, which is called EasyJet or Ryanair, but the many others, or the ones in the US, Southwest. The low cost in the US and Europe is still very short haul. So it's like not very short flights. In Asia, you're the only part of the world where you're starting to see, uh, you th see Air Asia X, for instance, you're starting to see low cost for longer, uh, longer hauls or for longer periods of time in a plane. That's something that nobody has quite figured out how to make it work, but it seems that Asia is starting to make it work. And finally, the other thing was, it's called, I'm not going to bore your audience with it, it's called the fifth freedom routes. You know, usually a plane usually was, you have a land. Uh, you have the rights to depart from your home country, and you have the rights to land in, uh, in another country. The Fifth Freedom Rights says that basically you can take passengers even in a country that is a third country. So, and Japan was one of the first to do it because you, you can do, for instance, uh, San Francisco Narita Manila. The airline can still take passengers in Tokyo on the way to, to Manila. So, and that's something that if you think about it, there's a lot of countries that still, that still do not allow this. They say, no, no, oh, either you arrive here and then you, you go back to where you came from, or you can't. So that's also something very innovative because it creates a lot of, of competition and fair competition. I mean, it's a big debate, but I think these are the ways that why Asia is so fascinating. Plus, Asia is simply, in China in particular, is will be the con the continent where the most plane will be sold. If you read either what Boeing and Airbus are saying, this is where all the aircrafts will be sold. And also we'll see a very, still a very big rise in terms of passenger air and cargo. So it's a very exciting continent to, to live in. Mm. Have you seen any interesting budget airline or even premium airlines in China that sort of caught your attention at the moment? I mean, they may be stated to be the next... <sighs> kind of like south the one the u.s budget airline what is it called yeah uh, southwest yeah southwest, uh, southwest or virgin america for example so i would say that right now china has one difficulty that it doesn't open its uh landing slots easily so if an airline like united has is currently having issues for instance to land to add landing slots in shanghai so china is still very directed for that and that, to me, has stifled a bit of the competition. It will ar arrive. I would say that the most exciting uh, uh, low-cost models right now are probably mostly in India, actually. India has seen, you have Indigo, that is really good. They just bought 250 Airbus A320. It's a biggest ever order that Airbus got. It's for this low cost in India. There's also SpiceJet. So India, has, because of course it's one single country, I think has a very exciting low cost. There are, there are of course low costs in China, but China due to regulation is still not there. I think China right now really concentrates on bringing people in and bringing people out. So basically people like you and me, I want to do business in China. I'm excluding Hong Kong, which is, of course, is a, I know it's in China, but it's a, a bit of a, an odd case in terms of aviation because they have a very long last tradition. So in other parts of China, Asia, you also have very interesting, I mean, I just mentioned AirAsia. AirAsia is still a fascinating model to follow in terms of low cost. You have little favorite. I'm just going to just gonna mention Starflyer in Japan. Koots, which was launched by Singapore. So you have a lot of, of model like that. The, the thing that everybody is figuring out now, trying to figure out, that's not only Asia, that's every single country, is how do you do it? 
On one side, you have the very premium experience you can have, you know, Emirates, Qatar, Singapore Airlines, Cathay Pacific. On the other hand, you have these low costs that we mentioned. How can you survive as a traditional carrier? So if you if you cannot, if you don't have a model like Emirates and you cannot offer, you know, very fancy, a very fancy experience. And on the other side, you don't have the the cost structure to offer a low cost, how do you survive? And this is something that a lot of countries are, are, are struggling with, including in Asia. Is like you have the traditional, you've seen what happened with Malaysian Airlines. So obviously Malaysian Airlines had the very bad luck of losing a plane and then the second one was shot. So that, of course, disrupted completely the airline. But Malaysian Airlines already had difficulties before because they were exactly in the middle they were not a low-cost airline, but they were not a great airline to fly with. They were not bad, but they were not a great airline to fly with. So this is something that you will see more and more, not only in Asia, but everywhere. And we see that in Europe with comp- companies like Air France or Lufthansa. They, they're, you know, they don't know where they stand. They're in, the, in between. And I think this is the... Well, isn't that very analogous to the digital world as well? I mean, digital Absolutely. disruption actually bifurcates the market. It takes it either the, to the very low end or it forces it to the very high end. I mean, this is what you also see in the airline industry. It's funny no, you absolutely. mentioned this because I was actually in recently in a digital disruption roundtable and I happened to meet up with one of the CEOs of a budget airline. And he made a very interesting quote that the most interesting part about the budget airline is the booking process. From the moment right. you book, you are actually, he says that, you actually, for him, he needs to get your attention within that flight to buy right. something. He's almost like an e-commerce store. Yeah, of course, because you know it's uh, as long as you've not boarded the plane. That's right. You have you haven't seen the product, so they have to convince you way, way, way before at the moment of inception. Oh, I want to travel for work or for tourism. Of course, there's price. A lot of a lot of it has, has to do price, hence the success of low cost. But also, you want safety. I mean, the, the one airline that I didn't mention in the in the low cost ones is obvious. It's the one from uh, it's Lion Air in in uh, Indonesia. But Indonesia is sadly has been known recently to have a lot of safety regulation issues. I mean, they're trying to fix them, but uh, meaning that there's also that safety thing that comes to play. If you most people say. Uh, make the wrong association, say, oh, a low cost, so they're not safe. No, actually, a company like EasyJet or Ryanair or a company like AirAsia, they're actually probably the, mo- the safest in the world because they have brand new aircraft because they were, they're more the younger companies and there are no thrills. You just pay for what you get and that's fine, actually. Uh, but it's true. You're absolutely right. You, they, they have to fight for you very early and most of these airlines are all purely digital. There's no, you cannot buy their ticket in ticket offices, in traditional travel agent, et cetera. You have to do it all via either an app or their website, et cetera. So it's, um, I would say that between Emirates on one side and probably AirAsia, they are, they are the Uber of the airline industry because it's disrupting on both sides, on the premium segment on, on one side and on the lower cost segment on the other side. And the, the, the rest of the industry is disrupted by these models. It's interesting because as well as you, you could see, I mean, disruption actually already happened in the travel industry. I mean, from the beginning of trying to discover the correct flight for yourself. I mean, you have travel search engines, which this intermediates the travel agents. And so correct. now you can actually search, right? Then you, re- then you have budget airlines, which is taking your time to basically have a low cost safe flight. But what they really want to do is to shop in their flight. So they sell you food at a certain higher price. They sell you certain thing also at a certain price. And then yeah, within the yeah, airport itself, there is also a lot of things happening now as well. 
So yeah, you, you even have airports that are starting to think about being low cost themselves. I mean, we have one here right. in, in London. That you would have to pay. You know, the kiss and fly. You know, when you drop someone uh, to and you say goodbye uh, by car, they make you pay for that, right? So this is also a low cost. But you know, at the end, I know that people sometimes complain about this, but there's the one thing that is amazing about low cost that is I democratize travel a lot. I was I was in, at my parents' home a few weeks ago, and my parents used to have this a habit to you know in the photo albums for the young people. Photo album is something you actually print. You know, <laughs> uh, it's not online. The photo they would actually also put the boarding pass and the travel details. So I was able to look at the prices for travel when I was basically almost a baby. And my God, I mean, now you can actually travel. And that's great. So I think the, sometimes the criticism against low cost is misplaced because I think it's okay. You just want to go from one point to another. You want a sandwich, you pay for it. You want something else, you pay for it. You want to actually put your luggage in, in the hall, you pay for it. You want an extra ex- something, you pay for it. And that's fine. Even actually in airlines like Delta is introducing this traditional airline, five class affairs, uh, Etihad, which is think thought as a premium one, is is introducing eight class affairs. So they say, you know what? If you want just want the lightest thing possible, basically you're just taking a bus, that's fine. Do not expect anything else, but that's fine. I, I, I think it's a great news for ind- for industry obviously it doesn't mean that there's no room for others and i think the more we'll, we'll go the more we'll see the separation between a premium flights which will will concentrate a long haul routes and that will concentrate a high yield routes and then the rest will be low cost more and more it's uh, the problem that you mentioned is that this industry by itself is almost impossible to disrupt for a very good reason first of all it's a very low margin industry there's a lot of regulation because you don't want to be killed in a plane, right? You want to arrive safely, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of political rife. I mentioned about the landing slots. You know, it's a. I, I don't know in the specific case of China, not uh, not refusing extra slots for United, but you might think that oh, maybe China just out of pure economical reasons and political reasons do not want to offer extra landing slots or the right to land at this airport. So. This is something that makes it much more complicated. And it's not as if you, Bernard, you and me, we can start an airline tomorrow. Imagine to start up money just to buy one single plane, even if you lease it. It's just an amazing, incredible amount of money. So by definition, this part is hard to disrupt. But the, the experience of a pas- passenger is potentially disruptable. So like you said... You have a lot of startups that offer now flight search engines, have a lot of passengers. You have an app to find the best lounge in the airport you're at. You have apps to connect to your the, your destination, to people in the plane, to offer Wi-Fi. Uh, you have wayfinding applications. You know, you're in an airport. How do I find the best way to go to from point A to point B? You have a lot of offers that are being made in the way to make our life easier when we travel. You even have connected suitcases nowadays. I'm not a big fan of them. But you know, the, the, the suitcase has integrated Bluetooth, integrated battery, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, so, and then you can exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of stuff happening that way. And also the, a lot of stuff in the background that you might not see it is all, you know, if you put a, a luggage in the hold, the way it's being directed uh, from, you know, the checking counter to the plane, et cetera, there's a lot of disruption happening by back something that we don't see it's a business to business model but how efficient this can be compared to the past so there's a lot of stuff happening but it's true that the experience itself is changing though the flight booking one i, I believe there's a lot of startups and i'm talking about entrepreneurs that say oh i'm gonna do an, uh, a great app to book flights the problem is that 
the, the margins are so thin. There are so many people doing it already. It's very hard to come up with something completely new. And bear in mind, Google has bought ITA. So ITA is one of the major providers of this that ticket, the backbone. You know, when you go and you look for a flight on most of the websites online, you're actually using ITA. You don't know it. It's hidden behind it. Google has acquired them. And Google has also an order in terms of a, a non-competitive agreement to not disrupt too much basically be, before October 2016. But when that agreement actually comes off, then Google will be able themselves to offer an experience. And you know, when I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to combat Google if, in a way or compete with Google, but Google will probably offer, because they know a lot about you. Already, Bernard, if you, if you book a flight and you get you know the email con- confirmation, every time you open Google Now, or even if you're on iOS, you just uh, go to your Gmail app or inbox, or even calendar, all your details will be there. They actually they make it readable. If you go on your Google Maps, you'll have your details about even your hotel bookings. Everything is integrated. It makes your life easier as a person. So they, because they have all this cross data between your emails and your searches, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, and again, the margins are so thin. I'm not sure that a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs realize that before they start. Uh, the aviation industry is not a one when you make a lot. By the way, I, can, I could ask you, have you ever heard of like, massive runs of investment for travel not no they usually get acquired by such engines i mean the most well-known in china is kuna right they it was actually right. done by a foreigner and eventually got so oh by the way he's greek too his last name is greek <laughs> so that's the thing it's usually it, I, i'm not saying so uh, winner takes it all but you have china i mean emerging countries in general you know, this type of apps do, might not exist a bit at the beginning or simply service. It could not always only be an app. And then, you know, somebody figures it out and it actually gets uh, bought. And, but then the margins, uh, the margin of innovation there is limited. At one point, I, I keep seeing every week new, and I have a curated list of product hunts. So I could give you the link of new apps that are for travel and for air travel. There's nothing that is, I mean, some are really nicely done. The UI is fantastic and it's very sexy and it's fun, but there's nothing that changes the way we travel completely. So, it's, it's a tough one. So let me ask you this question. Have you seen an Uber for private jets? I mean, there's one yes. in the US, but I haven't seen more any. than one actually. Have you there seen are more than one. Okay, so yeah, why hasn't that happened, say, in Europe or in Asia? I haven't seen anyone in Asia actually. Uh, so I've not looked it up for Asia, to be honest. I should have before we started this show. So I know there's one or two in Europe. There's three or four in the US. The problem with that is twofold. First. There's two types of Uber. Yeah, Uber Black, if you want. So basically, it's a professional chauffeur. So this would be the case for small aircrafts that operate for charter. So, you know, you're Steve Jobs and you need to get a chartered plane because you don't want to fly with the other people. So you have companies that already provide the service. And when they have off hours, so basically when their planes are not being used, they can actually sell you uh, tickets for that for that uh, that place. The problem is that the routes are also limited. You don't fly smaller aircraft like that to go from San Francisco to Singapore. You know, it's just limited to uh, the area. It can be a big area, but and or they usually also cannot be cost effective as long as there's not enough people. So you have to have let's say eight people booking that flight for just it to depart and actually make money on that route. So that's one bit. I've, we've seen a bit of that in the US. I haven't, I, 
to be very honest, I haven't looked in Asia. I will do, I'll promise you that, and I'll talk mm-hmm. about it in the next episodes of Layovers, and I'll mention you. And uh, sorry, and the other bit yeah. is is the one, the Uber X. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's like a private person with his private plane uh, that will actually say, oh, so Bernard, you, you, you're licensed to, to, to fly uh, a single engine aircraft, and you want to drive people, fly people around. The problem is that regulations, most often than not, do not allow you to do so. The U.S. recently has said that it's not allowed because your license gives you the right to fly you, probably friends and family, but it does not allow you to fly commercially. So this is what actually blocks probably this type of model. But here lies the interesting thing because the private Jets market. I mean, just for your information, there is not just one airport which you know is Changi. There is also another airport of course, which serves of course. the private jets. And what is interesting about their private jets airport is that surrounding it, there were businesses that actually set up branches there. And guess what? It's the private wealth businesses. The private banks no, are doing no, the businesses. So, you see, this, this there lies the very interesting part about the travel industry, right? There is this still high-end market that no one actually looks at. No, I, I will. I will say that probably, and this is something that. But again, in the U.S., most have not actually yet succeeded. But there is probably a market, a limited market for very high-end premium on-call jets. It kind of exists already, but it, there is probably a market for it. But you know, the limitation is that you have to have enough people using enough high-yield people using for a similar destination. It doesn't make sense for a jet to take off with just you and me to go from that other airport to say, I don't know. Kuala Lumpur. It just, I know Kuala Lumpur might not be the most obvious thing to take a jet to, but it's uh, from Singapore, I meant obviously. It's the economical model, it might not be there. I'm not saying that it will never happen. I'm saying that it's tougher to do. I think there's much more growth in low cost models than there is in this kind of automa- automation. Another um, interesting thing that, that I've seen recently in the US that could happen in, in, in Asia after a while is instead, so they still rely on traditional, so the, your, your, the airlines, all the airlines we mentioned, but instead of you having to buy a, every time a ticket, you buy a monthly subscription. So I don't know how they made the, the business model, to be honest. I haven't done the economics, but they say, oh, you, you pay $1,500 and you have access to an X amount of flight per month. Uh, and these flights can be, I think it's just domestic. They're not, you cannot go for, to, you know, from San Francisco to uh, Hong Kong. But this is maybe another model that we'll see. Honestly, I don't know. And the, I, I will end that by saying the other stuff also that is a bit limiting, obviously, in terms of the air travel is that car driver, you basically have access to the entire city. I mentioned earlier landing rights. There's a capacity issue. It's uh, just not everyone can just start decide to fly. There's a lot of regulations that come behind it, including landing rights that limits the, the inventory of, of planes and thus of destinations that can be achieved. So again, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm sure people will figure it out, especially for very you know, high net worth individuals. Will it be useful for you and me? Maybe one day, but I don't see that happening tomorrow. But that comes back to my next question. The airports in Asia. I mean, this is probably one of the interesting topics because the best airports are from Asia. I mean, the Hong Absolutely. Kong airport, Singapore's Changi airport, I think even for Dubai's airport as well. I, I don't know about the Abu Dhabi one. I, ma- I heard you mention in your show with your co-founder's father, I think Dom Hunter, the last Correct. episode on that. Uh, the airports, because the airports ha- is both regulated and yet they also run with a particular retail business model. Do you see that also changing as well? 
Well, I think that you are, again, you, you gave the blueprint in Asia because, so to make the rankings, it's always the same. I think 20 years in a row, uh, the Skytrax, Skytrax is the official awards for airports in the world. There's others, but this one is, uh, I think Shanghai has won it for 20 years in a row or something. So <laughs> you can see that it's always yep. the best airport. And then it's always a toss between Incheon and Seoul and Hong Kong. These airports are by definition really good. It's there's a, not only about retail, about all the quality of the airport. Dubai is a big cramped, is a great airport, of course, because but these are also newer airports. I'm not saying that by definition newer airports are better, but it's easier when you build an entirely new airport to have learned the lessons on how to not build an airport. You know, when you have JFK, New York, or uh, London Heathrow, they are quite old airports and they have to basically tore it down and restart. That's what happened in London. They tore one terminal down and they built a new terminal called Terminal 2 over it. Uh, I mean, next to it. But anyway, the point is, I think where uh, Asia was also very forward-looking is that retail model. That retail model was, for a very long time in the U.S., the culture of the airport, it was almost like taking the bus, especially before 9-11 and in the entire security uh, issue. You, you just, you know, you, could, you jump into, you arrive at the airport and jump into the plane. So you would not stay in the airport. It was kind of rare. There was a few, of course, layovers, et cetera, but it was never the idea to make it something comfortable. It was really a bus stop. In Europe, it was probably a bit, a bit, obviously a bit different, although now Ryanair and EasyJet are always changing the way to the low-cost business. So airports, they've been privatized and they have to figure out a business model. And the best ones is, of course, retail to the point that the, the way they're designed nowadays, they force you to go through retail. They force you to go through the duty-free They force after, after or before immigration, after or before you get your luggage. This this is the way for airports to be to be successful. But also, and that's because that's not the only thing, it's simply the, the fact that you can have an agreeable experience. I mean, Singapore... Uh, Shanghai is not only because there's a lot of retail that, of course, offers revenue for the airport, is that because you are happy to be there, you will also probably buy more stuff because there's so much stuff to do. You can relax, you can watch movies, you have, you can go on the rooftop. There's a natural trail, there's a swimming pool, there's, there's stuff like that. Maybe not everybody uses them, but it makes for a more relaxed environment and thus often actually yields better revenue for the retail. And I think this is a model that if you look at the plans for new airports, so there's Istanbul, for instance, or Mexico City, which are very big airports, well, they are also laid out. I mean, we don't have the, the the final layout of these airports, but clearly they will be retail destinations. And again, Singapore is innovating because, and in Seoul, in Seoul, they are innovating because now that you've had that model, you're going even further. Both Singapore will build, you might know that, will build a new terminal and also build that central thing uh, between all the terminals in Singapore. Yeah, or Shanghai. the jewel. Yes, exactly, jewel, right? Yeah. What they, what they do here is to make the airport, the airport as a destination itself. It's not only when you are traveling to or from that you'd get at the airport. You'd be in Singapore and you want to go to the mall and that would be one of your options. You might not even travel, but you might go there. Incheon is doing this, is thinking about doing the same thing. They want to create an entire entertainment district next to the airport. So basically, again, even locals who would actually be at the airport while not actually flying, of course, not be, you know, after security. I'm really mean. So 
I think, again, this is something that the model is not proven, but I'm pretty sure that both Shang and Inchon will figure it out. They will make it actually as destination themselves, which if you had asked anyone uh, even 10 years ago, would you go to a airport just to hang out? Most people look like look at you like you're crazy. So I think this is something that we'll see more and more that will offer even a better experience. Of, although some people, and I can understand, would complain that it's too commercialized. But, you know, the airports have to make have to make money. And the other thing, there will always be a place, and also, sorry, a place for low-cost airports. I mean, I know that Singapore has a low-cost terminal. There will be that as well. Oh, that's uh, because, gone already. Yeah, I know. They, oh, the Terminal the, 4. The, okay. Yeah, they're transferred to the first terminal, actually. So that's, that shows that. That's, uh, it's kind of a mixture now. I haven't, I haven't been there for Yeah, so the Terminal so 4 is actually a new terminal. A new terminal, exactly. Yeah, yeah, correct. correct. Because they, so, they, they decided that actually there's no point having a budget and a and a normal terminal because it's all well, like use, use, a van. Yeah. No, no, you say that, but I mean, usually what happens, the reason for a, a low-cost terminal is not the people. It's actually because the airlines, the low-cost airlines are negotiating a better deal. They say, okay, we don't want to pay the land. You know, every time an aircraft lands in an airport, they have to pay taxes. And uh, what usually happens is that when countries, it's true that Singapore might not have to have the same fight, but really airports are competing and say, I want to have EasyJet here or I want to have AirAsia. And AirAsia will come and say, okay, if you want us, if you want to create more trade, because that's one thing that I should have said at the very early beginning when I was talking about aviation. The reason I love aviation is that trade always follows plane routes. Yeah, the I'm reason, right yeah, yeah. It, it creates, I mean, of course, then you need like the shipping and you need, you know, you need other types of infrastructure. But right now, trade is really follows plane routes. So there, there's a real and a true competition by countries and airports and cities to say, we want more destination because that will create more trade. Thus, they will actually say, okay, AirAsia, you need an airport that is uh, no frills because you're a low-cost model. Here's a, here's an anger where there's no much to do, but the landing rights will be less for you. So that's why usually you see low-cost terminals being built. It's because they want to attract more. Actually, Emirates is very well known. I mean, they're not low-cost, but they're very well known to, you know, they expand very rapidly to do it to various uh, cities in the world. Actually, they compete a lot with Singapore and Hong Kong. Hong Kong and Singapore have, you know, the the idea of Dubai was the same as, again, you you guys had a blueprint. It's like, we'll do a free port and we'll attract people by plane. And this is exactly what they do. And they go to cities and they say, here's why, not only because we can we'll bring you very fancy A380s, it's also because you create business. When they opened their ride, I think it was Chicago, the business, the intra the trade between Chicago and Dubai, I think went 300% up. You know, a lot of people from Chicago say, oh, I have a direct route. I'll, I'll try. I'll see what happens there. And then you meet people. Then I meet Bernard in, in Singapore and I say, let's do business together. Then we need other stuff, of course. You need a, a good environment for business, etc. But so playing aviation for that is extremely important. And, and this, is the, this is why uh, airports are also competing. Singapore, the reason that you're making this uh, new jewel in the, in, in the middle is not only because you have great designers, the great thinkers, the great rulers in, in Singapore, it's also because you're competing with Hong Kong, you're competing with China that is opening up, you're competing with all the other countries around you, and you have to keep an edge, say, okay, this is also a reason why you come to Singapore, because we know how to welcome you, because, you know, so this is something Something interesting. This is why I'm seeing Asia because the growth of the world will have will still happen in Asia. I see Asia going uh, going forward a bit 
I will mention it. I'm sorry because I know I'm rambling because I didn't mention. Of course, there are counterexamples. You have uh, other countries that still lag behind. Of course, one is in the Philippines, which is a bit sad because they used to be quite rich in the 50s and the 60s. But the airport, I mean. Terminal 1 is, although it has been recently refurbished, is still a bit of a disaster. And that's the first image you have of a country. When you arrive in a country for the first time, the first thing you ever see is the airport. So I'm not saying that you have to have gold and fancy stuff, but I think it's a, it's a wise investment in terms of you want to create, at appeal, attract, of course, tourists, but also attract businesses, is to make your airport appealing to, uh, to people. Mm. And of course, we haven't talked about the airports being the logistics hub. I mean, in the e-commerce, I mean, in the in the industry I'm in, the airport is also a very very important trade route. Yeah, it across. is. Also, so 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 the airports are actually far more than just B two C. There is that B two B part that actually oh, takes course. up the entire industry by itself. On that. Oh, of course. I mean, you've heard in terms, it's not in terms of including cargo. It's a huge thing that, of course, a lot of people don't know about. This is a reason why, for instance, Memphis Airport, which you figure when you look at M- Memphis, you say, oh, well, Memphis is not that big. Well, Memphis is uh, is a huge cargo airport because of FedEx. So, because, you know, FedEx transits things and they, they actually have their, their main hub there. Uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, you both have a lot of, of, of cargo as well because a lot of it gets transferred through through air uh, although of course shipping stays usually more competitive but it takes much much longer so this is of course i mean i didn't want because we're already over an hour of talking here but this is of course extremely important as well and, and i encourage you to listen to uh, episode 22 with like you mentioned uh, uh, alex father because he mentioned the story of switching hong kong airport from the old uh, kai tak to the new airport and how the cargo situation was dire and that he actually blocked people from making business if your things couldn't be transferred because the airport wasn't working it's a true disaster Yes, that's right. So we will definitely resume this conversation again. Maybe the next time <laughs> round, we will be talking about the B2B piece because that's yes. an area that I know pretty, I'm very familiar with at the moment. So We should do that. Yeah, we should do that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, well, help my audience. How do they find you, Paul? Yeah, so they can go uh, the easy. I mean, my last name as well is complicated. So I would say <laughs> just one address. You, you, you type pp, so double p dot lc. So think about pp.lowcost if you want. And that's, uh, that, that directs you to my website, which has a much longer name. And on the website, you'll have my Twitter, my Facebooks, et cetera. Plus the, and of course, I encourage you to listen to Layovers. Uh, so Layovers.2, if you just look for Layovers Podcast, you'll find it. It's on iTunes. It's on many other platforms. Uh, there's an RSS, et cetera, et cetera. So on SouthCloud. So, and uh Please listen to it. Give us feedback, and I'll and I'll also give you since I have an audience, and I'm not always uh, have because you have a great audience, Bernard. If anyone uh, there is an entrepreneur and doing, even if it's a ticket booking app or anything that is for the passenger experience, reach out to us first because we might talk about your product on the show, but also we're always interested in in, in getting guests, people that try to do something that is part of the airline, the air travel experience. So if anyone wants uh, to uh, pitch me a product or send or be a guest, just uh, try to contact me. All the info is on my website, mm. pp.lc. Right. And you can find me at bleongcwr at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us on Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And you can 
go to our iTunes and give us a rating. One star to five star. We all would love feedback from you. So, Paul, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And I'll give you five stars. I promise you that. 